Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Slate Money is sponsored by Volvo. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com US. And by Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit harrys.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code MONEY. Hello, and welcome to the Punchbowl edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, and I'm joined, as always, by Kathy O'Neill, the blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. Hi, Kathy, and Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. Hello, Felix. Hello, Jordan. And today is a good day, because we all now live in a nation of gay marriage, and we're all sitting by the beach drinking rosé, and we are... (laughs) Going to celebrate by responding to some listener emails about the Fed, about Greece, about whether Greece is the new Argentina. But because it's summer and because it's Pride weekend and because it's, you know, just a happy day today, we're going to start with, um, well, I mean, what it says here on my piece of paper is topic number one, beer and wine, which basically (laughs) could, could be anything... Anything I want. Um, But I think what I'm going to do with this topic number one, beer and wine, is I'm going to push off, as it were, with a Business Week story about Anheuser-Busch or InBev Anheuser-Busch or IBAB or whatever it's called these days, the Brazilian... Anheuser-Busch? Is that how the British say it? Well, it's Dutch, isn't it? I don't know. Anyway, it's... (laughs) Um, <laughs> it's it's um it's kind of Brazilian, it's kind of Dutch, it's kind of American. It does own Budweiser and the biggest selling beer in America, Bud Light. And there's a little bit of a brouhaha, you might say. Ooh. Ooh. In, <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> in, I feel like we're already drunk. Yeah, this is <laughs> What a bubbly episode. It's, anyway. There, there, there's, there's a brouhaha going on over the fact that IB InBev, or whatever it's calling itself, is buying up small and smallish craft breweries. And there's a bunch of outraged quotes from various craft ale fans in America who are saying, I would never drink or I would never sell you know, to, to these big multinational evil people. And so 
beer, beer, um, beer is Jordan's favorite subject, I believe. It's one of them. It's, it's one of Jordan's favorite it's subjects. It's one of my absolute favorite subjects. Jordan, so I'm going to move on to wine in a minute because I know wine more than beer. But tell me, um, does this make sense to you? Do you have sympathy with the people who think it's just the worst thing in the world if a craft beer is owned by someone who has a bit more sort of distribution muscle? No, I, I don't think it's the worst thing in the, in the world. But I want to start with... There, there are also like some conspiracy theories that I think are kind of important to go through before we get into the actual economics of it, uh, which is that obviously craft brewers, been bo- craft brewers have been booming in the U.S., right? Their market share has been growing, growing, growing. I think they're up to like 15% of the market now. Um, but it's still relatively small. Like one of the big landmarks recently was that uh, craft beer sales surpassed regular Bud Heavy sales in the U.S., which is amazing. Americans now drink more craft beer than Budweiser. On the other hand, um, that means that all craft beer sales combined still basically equal one macro brew. So they're an important part of the market and profitable one, but they're still not, you know, really the uh, they're re- not really mainstream at this point. So. A lot of these brewers are now concerned that essentially AB InBev, whatever we want to call it, is trying to sabotage them. Um, one of the, and uh, in, in this story, they bring it up. Uh, one of the brewers they bought is Goose Island in Chicago, which is an old favorite of mine. I went to Northwestern and I drank a lot of their beer at Tailgates. Um, and it was, you know, I even felt a little sad when they bought it up because it was one of the, like, the great craft brewers. But, and some people are saying that they are now selling barrels of Goose Island for like half the price of other uh, microbrews in order to undercut the market and maybe put some of the competition out of business. Again, it's it's all sort of, it's hard to tell how so, much so, truth okay, there okay, is. But wait, but, hang on a sec. Wait, but stop, there stop. Is, yeah. Why were you sad? Why was I sad? Yeah, oh, well, because, okay, well, craft brew, craft beer, there, there's sort of an emotional component to it, right? Like, it's your beer. It's it's this whole idea of independent small businesses doing their thing and kind of rebelling. You know, it's independent artist against the major label. It's an independent brewer versus you, the macro Are you brewer. sad when your independent no. artist bands that you like sign with a major label? Does that make you no, sad? No, I don't. No, I, I, I typically don't. And that's why I eventually got over it. And to follow that up, I became very happy when I realized I could get Goose Island in a lot more parts of the country thanks to their improved distribution. So, I mean, I think that, just to be clear, the reason that you're sad is because you have some kind of emotional uh, Was sad. Attachment. A little bit sad. Okay. Yeah. But I think there is actually another reason to actually maybe be sad. Um, and then, of course, there's plenty of reason to be happy. But the main reason to be sad for a given brewery that's picked up by this multinational corporation is that what they do once they own them is they cut prices. They cut, you know, and people think along with you know, cutting all kinds of expenses, they also like compromise on quality. And that's the fear. Well, that, yeah. And that's happened in Europe a lot where, um, major or the macro brewers there have bought up regional breweries and sort of dumbed them down for a larger market. We don't know if that's going to happen in the U.S. or, you know, Budweiser, especially actually under AB InBev, the, the, you know, the Brazilian owners are known for cutting costs wherever they can using instead of whole grains of rice broken rice that sort of thing all right i mean like just looking for any way they can sort of eat I, a little I bit had more no idea out. that rice was even a ingredient in beer uh, in american macro brewers yes it is a it is an ingredient so that is the that's the sort of stuff that their word is going to go down from uh that's going to sort of filter down from the you know big part from the budweiser and whatnot into these craft brewers. okay so, so but my, i would i would argue that someone like myself who i love beer by the way i'm and i'm much more of a beer person than a wine yeah. person so i'm going to try to remain in this conversation as long as possible um i'm willing to pay more 
for a good beer. Yeah. So I guess I, I guess the other point I want to make is like, I think of this as kind of just plain victory, right? Yeah. We have craft brews that are getting sucked up by the big houses. They're going to get cheaper. They're going to get a little bit less good. But at the same time, we're going to have new breweries popping up with better brew, and I'm willing to yeah. pay more for it. See, I'm not even sure they're going to get less good. I think actually, I, I don't see I'm much value. I'm just saying even yeah. if they do. See, I, I even if they do, I, I think that these breweries don't really have much value to, I, I don't think Budweiser's really going to try to turn any of these into a mass brand. I find that very unlikely. I think at best, they're going to try and compete with Sam Adams, like maybe Goose Island will be kind of tried to brought up to that level, but they're still not going to be able to uh, reduce ingredient quality, like use crappier ingredients and beat out uh, the other, you know, again, like a Sam Adams type company. It's just not going to happen. So I I think you're the upside here in terms of just availability and maybe selling this stuff at a little bit lower cost is is more. But the upside, okay, the thing which I, you know, as a wine drinker, the thing which I've always been kind of impressed and jealous of in terms of the beer world is that beer scales in a way that wine does not. If you have a vineyard, there's a finite number of vines in that vineyard, and that vineyard produces a finite amount of wine, and that's it. And beer, if you have like a great brew from Goose Island or anyone else, you can make as much of that as you want, pretty much. It scales so much more easily. And that, it seems to me, is a really, really good reason for small breweries being bought by larger concerns because the larger concerns can scale them up can and can wind up distributing more beer to more people in more cities around the country and that's just Pareto optimal I think that yeah I think there's no I think you're, <laughs> I think you're right about that um there, it's actually there's some beers that don't scale as well brewing beer consistently is incredibly difficult and for the really complicated beers that sort of have off notes and things it, you're never going to get them to macro brew scale you just I, I doubt you could ever do it but you're right there are a lot of beers that are sort of in between that can scale and you can get them all the way from the east coast to west coast where currently you don't so i i, I tend to agree in general and, this and is good I, for I don't think we we have time to go too much into wine so send in your emails and ask us questions about wine we will answer them but i will say that as a general rule, in fact, a, u- a universal rule, any wine which scales is a bad wine. So if, <laughs> if you have, if you see a wine brand, which is clearly just something which the manufacturer can make as much of as it likes, you know, and it has a name like Yellowtail or Jacob's Creek or just some random brand that gets put on there, and it doesn't actually come from a specific place, yeah. and it doesn't, you know, it's not made by a specific winemaker, then that is going to not be a good wine. Not because they water Wait. down the grapes, but because they just buy up vineyards. Like because you can't, you can't, there's no terroir, there's no sense of place, and there's no, in order to get consistency, in order for, you know, this bottle of Yellowtail to taste exactly the same as that bottle of Yellowtail, even though the the grapes might be coming from places 3,000 miles apart from each other, you have to just make a lowest common denominator wine. Mm. Yeah, I... I actually have a question. Is there anything close to an Anheuser-Busch of wine these days? Is there... I know that... Bud Light. I want to know what the Bud Light of wine is. Well, yeah. I mean, that's well, okay, like well, that's two different, or something. There, there's but, two, that's two different questions. The, yeah. The individual brands are things like, you know, um, Charles Shaw or Yellowtail or, you know, any of those. There's a few big wine companies. Often they're Australian. But no, there's... The fact is that wine is much, much more fragmented, and you can't have like one wine that have fifteen percent of the market like you can in beer. Beer tends to have big national monopolies. That's how 
um, the Brazilians who own IB InBev or whatever it's called, um, <laughs> you know, um, they um, they started with, uh, you know, the Brazilian beer monopoly and then they moved on to the Belgian beer monopoly and now they bought the American beer monopoly and you just buy the biggest brand in each country and that's what everyone drinks in every bar. Wine doesn't work like that. You don't go into a you know, restaurants say, oh, I'll have a bottle of, you know, the wine which everyone drinks in this country. <laughs> the, the one the one interesting exception to that, and it's not even an exception, but the closest that I've ever seen is one of my favorite wines, which does scale. Um, it's not really wine. It's sherry. It's Tio Pepe in Spain. Um, it's a wonderful, wonderful sherry. It's a genuinely excellent sherry. And it, it's made in vast quantities, and you can buy it at an incredibly reasonable price, not just anywhere in Spain, but anywhere in the world. You can go down to your local wine store, I can almost guarantee you that they sell it. It'll cost you, I don't know, 15, 16 bucks, something like that. And it's great, great wine. Hmm. And Spain, more than any other country in the world, makes great wine in high quantities. So go Spain. Okay, so I think that's enough of beer. Wine is... Next week, perhaps. We can talk more and about it. The other thing I wanted to talk about is the distribution methods for both beer and wine. We will talk, let's talk that's, about that. That's, that's a, a long, good, yeah, that's a full episode. That's a good Maybe we can do a episode. wine episode. Wine episode. Send in your and wine questions, episode. and I will make sure that I publish my um, my rant about rosé sometime between now <laughs> Wait, and next week. Wait, are you anti-rosé? I'm pro- very, very pro-rosé. Oh, you're pro-rosé. Oh, God. you know, super pro-rosé. You know, pro rosé. You know I didn't know he was going to say that. Rose, <laughs> I was going to say rosé is almost becoming, It's. I think it's almost crested. I think it's It's. It's adding, It's sort of beyond its cultural All right, now. next week. <laughs> next week is rosé week. Um, <laughs> this week is Volvo week. We are sponsored by Volvo this week, which I'm super excited about. And so go out and drive a Volvo, people, because Volvo is the company which makes great cars. And if you do that, you can get a month's payment from Volvo if you spend your summer driving a car around wooded hills, mountains, lakes. Where's your number one favorite place to drive to in the summer, Kathy? If I had a car, I would probably go to the Catskills and enjoy the mountains. And it would be a? With, With a Volvo. Is that what I was, yeah, yeah. That's the right question. That's yeah. the right answer. Woo. I grew up with a Volvo, and it genuinely was my favorite car when I was growing up. My parents had a few of them, a few different cars, and the Volvo was my favorite. It was a big station wagon. We went all over the UK in it. You, too, can give your children those happy memories. So have a month, month's payment on Volvo. Spend your summer doing the things that matter to you with your kids. They will thank you for it when they're old like me. Go to volvocars.com slash US. Find a Volvo dealer. They're everywhere. They're awesome. They're friendly. They're brilliant. Um, Kathy. Yes. Tell me about the letter. Who was it from? The letter was from Cormac Eubanks. Thank you, Cormac. Um, And here it goes. Hi. Thanks for a wonderful program. You're welcome, Cormac. I have a financial question which has always puzzled me. The Federal Reserve has the goals of promoting maximum employment, stable prices i.e. low inflation, and moderate long-term interest rates. Why does the Fed not consider the price of equities in considering when inflation is too high? Aren't historically high equity prices due to cheap money a form of inflation which is shown to threaten economic stability? Thanks. Um, okay, so there's a lot there, and I want to like, break it down a little bit. I think it's a great question. First though. of all, Kathy, yeah. 
What is equities? Yeah, so equities just means the stock market. So the S and P index you hear at on, like on marketplace every day. So when you say, oh, the S and P is you know up two percent, that means equities are up. That's what people mean when they say equities. Now, and and I can buy stocks just as easily as I can buy Volvos, right? And so if I'm measuring inflation, shouldn't I be measuring the price of stocks along with the price of Volvos? So we ta- we actually talked about inflation our econ 101 and I remember Jordan put it really well. Do you remember how you described the way we just we uh, measure inflation Jordan? God, I I wish. I mean like I I feel I feel it's a basket coming yeah, I was about I, to the, say it's a basket the, of the goods. first thing everyone always says yeah. when we talk about measuring inflation is basket. Oh, it which is, is basket. one of the weirdest metaphors. <laughs> but I always have this idea of someone walking around the supermarket with a wicker basket yeah. throwing various bits and things oh. into their supermarket into their basket, taking it up to the checkout counter and then whatever number the checkout woman rings up is the inflation rate. No, that you're day. you're missing Felix. Jenny Elon actually has a basket basket that she walks around with. This is Really? Who's, yeah. Wait, Jenny who? Janet Yellen. Oh, Janet. <laughs> Janet. It's Janny. Janet <laughs> Yellen. Yeah, who, who's the chairwoman of the Fed. Yeah. Um, Slate's no. money where Jordan enunciates <laughs> and we can all understand him. Oh, that'll be a very special episode. Um, yeah. No, it's a so they have a a basket of goods. It's just saying a a list of different goods that people typically buy, right? Um, everything from housing to food to, you know, education, all, all sorts of different fi- goods and services. But it's basically the cost it's the of living. Cost of living. It's not For the, average yes. people. It's not the cost of yeah. putting your money in the stock market. Yeah. Well, and they're also, and they have separate indexes too, where they have like the cost of, you know, the PCE index, which also kind of is the cost of being a business more or less. Uh, all, all sorts of different, but there isn't really... Uh, there aren't really many businesses that have to buy stocks as part of their daily lives. There aren't really many people that, I mean, there aren't a lot of people in America really who buy a ton of stock as part of their daily life. If anything, they're doing through a 401k. It's and not, even if they do, they always yeah. just put a certain amount of money into it. It's not they're like, I need another seven shares. Oh, no, those shares are really expensive now. Exactly. And it's not something where, you know, part of the reason inflation is important is because you how you plan your financial future. It's how people plan. It's how businesses plan their investment decisions, things like that. No one is really planning their their you know their future budget based on and whether or not they're going to buy a house necessarily based on the price of stocks um well they might if they but, think stocks but there are is go up, but, but there is more to the question yeah. than this what yeah. what Cormac is saying is that high stock prices are symptomatic yes of lax monetary policy that you know we've had the federal reserve dropping lots of money from helicopters that has caused prices to go up and if you have lax monetary policy then as night follows day there will be inflation and so therefore if the federal reserve sees high stock prices they should be worried about inflation because they because it's symptomatic of a of something which is going to cause inflation down the road okay so I want to answer Cormac. I think we have enough background to try to start answering Cormac's question. The first reaction I had was, God, no. Yeah. (laughs) Because the Fed, essentially under Alan Greenspan, was paying attention to the market, but actually in the wrong direction. So there was something called the Greenspan put, where what it basically meant uh, was that when the stock market went down, um, Alan Greenspan changed the Fed rate to make to convince people to to spend uh banks to invest more money in the stock market. So he sort of elevated the stock market. So that now, was the now, opposite of what Alan you're Greenspan asking. Alan Greenspan has um has actually said this many times in many different fora. 
that he believes that the level of the stock market is a crucial part of what's often known as consumer confidence, that if people own stocks and the value of their stocks is going up, then they will feel rich and they will spend more money. And if they spend more money, that's going to improve economic growth. And since and if, and if you improve economic growth, that tends to reduce unemployment. And so one of the ways that the Federal Reserve under Alan Greenspan tried to reduce unemployment was literally to make stocks go up. Yeah. And so we, we found out that that was not a particularly good way of thinking about things. Yeah. In particular, not everyone has money in the stock market. So he was really only talking about the people who had enough money to have money in the stock market. You know, there, there's also another issue here, which is... We don't always know exactly why stock prices are as high as they are, and it's hard to pick to say loose monetary policy is the reason, especially at a time when actual inflation is so, so low. Um, it's, you know, there, there are a lot of reasons. We don't even know if stocks are, are necessarily expensive. It's very difficult to figure out if there's a bubble. And mo- and more to the point, the real answer to the question yeah. is um, we have no idea whether loose monetary policy is always and everywhere something which causes inflation. Historically, it has done often in the past. But then again, there have also been historic periods where there's been lots of money and no inflation. And there are lots of what's known as liquidity traps. And Japan is a prime example where you can have very loose monetary policy and no inflation at all. So even if you're right, Cormac, that loose monetary policy is the cause of high stock prices, that still doesn't mean that you're going to have inflation. That's true. But I would still maintain that it's an interesting, at least thought experiment to say, look, the the dual mandate of the Fed, which is to have maximum employment and um, low inflation or reasonable inflation, it's really hard for them to control the employment, actually, we've seen. So why don't we replace that as a thought experiment with uh, fighting against asset bubbles, and see what would that look like. It would certainly not look like the Greenspan put because he was not fighting asset bubbles. He was contributing to them. But it would be interesting to imagine what they would actually try to do if they were if that was well, part of their I, mandate. And, and, well, yeah, there's a couple of good reasons why that's not a good idea. And the first one is that even though the Fed has little direct control over unemployment, it has even less control over asset prices. Um, you know, if I say the you know the Fed basically has one main lever which is short-term interest rates. Um, if I raise short-term interest rates, do stock prices go up or do they go go down? You can sort of make an argument either way. Yeah, I mean, you can. I mean, the idea is that you are going to raise short-term interest rates and cool off the economy, but that doesn't necessarily. I mean, as we know, stock prices can go up in a relatively uh, tepid economy. We've seen that for the past several years. So it's 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 tricky. It's very very hard. As as Alan Greenspan found out, you know, when the Dow was at sixty four hundred or thereabouts, he came out with his famous speech saying that there was irrational exuberance in the stock market, and the stock market plunged by like one hundred and twenty points or more on when he came out with the speech, and then it promptly turned around and went up to ten thousand. So um, you know, the Fed has precious little control over asset prices. It's also kind of frightening to think about what would happen if the Fed tried to you know, police asset prices without considering employment. Because imagine a situation where they were just trying to pop a bubble and it wouldn't pop and they kept raising interest rates and people kept ending up unemployed. I mean, it's it sort of, it, it would be sort of perverse in yeah, a way. Yeah, you're right. I, I, don't mean, wanna, just... I don't want to take away the maximum employment. But I do, I do want to say one thing before we leave this conversation. The Fed actually has a little bit more con- more uh, tools at its power in its power than than just the Fed rate. They also, for example, have the uh, reserve rate 
and there, which the is reserve rate? the reserve rate is yeah. the amount of um, of interest that banks get for just their required reserves. Oh right, yeah. and it's it historically been zero, but it's, I think it's at point two. It's twenty five basis points uh, right this, now. It, yeah, and and when slate money starts talking about IOER. <laughs> interest on excess excess reserves. You know we are entering a level just, of wonkishness. I'm just pointing out that there, Didn't yeah, we it talk is pretty about wonky. I don't want to go before. too far. I'm pretty sure we've gotten into the subject before. This isn't the no, first. And, and, and the main and the main <laughs> thing that the Fed does is it sets margin rates for for, for the stock market. The, the IOER rate is not hugely effective for the stock market, um, but the amount of margin that you need to put up when you you know buy or sell stocks on margin, they can affect that as well, and that will increase or decrease the amount of speculation that there is in the stock market. But still, you know, we're talking about tinkering at the margins. And frankly, the big question is not whether the Fed should add yet another mandate to its two, because already two is like, you know, complicated because they can work against each other. Uh, Most central banks in the world these days only have one. They just target inflation and they reckon that everything follows from that. I think we pretty much only have one. (laughs) I I will say that there, I don't think that... The question is totally crazy, though. If you change it from equities, right, and you say, should the Fed be paying greater attention to debt bubbles? You know, should they be paying more attention to mortgage lending? Oh, yeah. And that is, and that is not necessarily equity bubble, but specifically, that, and because there's been research that that's starting to really support the idea that yes, loose monetary policy has driven some of the booms and busts in the housing market that have been so destructive. But again, it's hard to figure out how you hit that balance while also pursuing the probably more important dual mandate they already have. I just want to throw in that yes, inflation as it's measured does. We could even do this directly by just changing the debt weights in the inflation in the basket that we were talking about earlier. We have, for example, yeah. housing, but it's rent. It's not actual um, house prices. We could, If we tweak that, we would have a totally different – It would be in a cer- certain sense, it would be keeping an eye on housing bubbles. You know, So there's ways of doing it that don't mm, actually change that's the That's interesting. That's a, that's put, put house prices rather than rents. Yeah. Interesting idea. Or we could idea. add another weight. You know, we could add categories. Above, okay. Yeah. So – There's your answer, Cormac. I hope that was helpful. But apologies if we didn't agree with your premise. Um, We also have another sponsor. It's Harry's Razors. You know, I've actually started using Harry's Razors. I've replaced my old Gillette's. I got a a starter pack when I was doing uh, one of the pitches for the show. And... I, I, I didn't actually expect to to prefer them, but I really do. They're, I, I like them better, and yeah, they're cheaper. It is a really just much cheaper way of doing something which is even better than it was before. It's cheaper and better. It's the best combination. So um, if you don't have Harry's razors, if you haven't tried them out, um, go online to harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter the coupon code MONEY. You'll get $5 off a starter set, and that starter is just $15 um, normally, which includes the razor and three blades and the shave cream or the shave gel, whichever one you want. $5 off $15 is what, Jordan? $10. $10. You can afford $10. <laughs> An entire month's worth of shaving for $10. That's cheap. So go for it. And I'll leave, I'll leave you with a little fact. They own their entire razor blade factory in Germany. How awesome is that? Okay, harrys.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code money. Mr. Mr. Wiseman. Yes. Mr. Wiseman. Yes, I'm here. Can we, can we, uh, okay, there, I promised one of our listeners 
earlier this week that I thought this week would be the Greece week. Yeah, it's not. And <laughs> and um, and on Monday it really did seem because there was there was a lot of talk about now it is really down to the wire and we're going to find out one way or the other what's going to happen. And no, no. Every time you think that it really is the end of the road for Greece, the road winds up being just that little bit longer. Yeah, it's it's actually gotten pretty funny to the point where like. The the kind of euro ministers are just joking about the various proposals they have in front of them. They can't even they don't even know what's coming from where or what's official. It's it's a mess. However, we did get a really good letter from a writer that gave us a way to talk about Greece that also plays into one of these this show's great strengths, which is talking about Argentina or specifically <laughs> Felix talking about Argentina. He's just um, basically saying Felix a cookie. No, but you know. All right, so who, yeah. did, who did this email come from? So Gordon? He, they also asked a question I've personally been wondering. So I'm looking forward to this, which is. Um, this came from a uh, CJ or C Jenkins, and they write, Kathy, Felix, and Jordan, I am a PhD graduate student in evolutionary biology, hopefully finishing soon, hopefully. I have a soft spot in my nerdy little heart for economics and often think I should be doing a PhD in macroeconomics instead. Don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was Felix, by the way. Although, I don't know, you make good money. Anyway, along those lines, I've read extensively about why Greece is in the situation it's in and how Iceland's economy went bottom up and really what went wrong with Spain. Anyway, the letter continues. Um, she goes, Every other podcast I know has been talking about Greece this week and its default problems. I know it's splashier because it's on the euro, but how is it different than Argentina? Which, of course, we all know Argentina defaulted on its debts many years ago in La Crisis, the crisis, uh, which Felix has talked about on the show. Felix, I've been wondering the same question because in all this back and forth uh, that's been going on this week, I've gotten to the point where I've, I've been wondering... Maybe Greece would just be better off just exiting stage right. Maybe it's it's time for them to go. Is it possible? Why couldn't Greece survive, whereas Argentina has sort of survived? Well, okay, the first thing to say is that, yes, Argentina survived in the sense that it's still on the map. <laughs> but if you went to Argentina in 2002, as I did, like, you know, during the crisis, it's not something you would ever wish on any country. The devaluation and the default that Argentina went through was unbelievably painful. You had huge, soaring unemployment. You basically had no ability for businesses to bring anything into the country, to create anything. You had really high inflation, and you had general misery. I mean, there was a point at which diabetics could not get insulin because no none of the um, drug importers could have like trade lines which would allow them to import insulin into the country you know and this was really bad I mean fatal um, so people will die if you know like there's there's really bad things to kind of to, to this kind of macro big devaluation and default um, now the flip side to that is once you've devalued and defaulted and bitten that bullet then you know it's a really brutal and drastic way of doing this competitive devaluation. So your exports, such as they are, start becoming more competitive. And that's what happened to Argentina. After it devalued, there was this big boom, which you remember in the 2000s. China started buying a lot of commodities. Argentina produces a lot of commodities. And so Argentina had a big commodity boom. And so that helped Argentina. Why does this not apply to Greece? Well, that's a good question, but there's, you know, a couple of very good answers, which is, number one, 
Greece doesn't produce a whole bunch of commodities which it can export to Argentina, at, you know, I mean, to, to, to China at lower rates. Um, and also, it would still um, suffer from the devaluation in much the way the same same way as, as Argentina did. But there's one huge difference about Greece which didn't apply to Argentina. Before Argentina defaulted, it wasn't borrowing huge amounts of money from the IMF, the ECB, the EU, the Troika, the you know, all of this kind of alphabet soup that Greece is borrowing money. Greece is getting all of these all of this money in from external institutions, if it defaulted, all of that money would stop. Now, I know what you're going to say. You're going to talk about primary surpluses, right? Yep. Yes, so, I, <laughs> and what that means is, is that like all of the money they're getting in from those other institutions are just turning around and sending it back. So why can't they just default and just not pay anything back? And wouldn't, wouldn't, that be, wouldn't they be better off? And the answer is, you can't just stop paying everything. Well, that, yeah. The debt doesn't go away just because you default. That's actually my biggest question this week, um, in the last couple of weeks actually, is would Greece, I mean, everyone talks about the, the the idea, they conflate the two issues of default, Greece defaulting on their debts to the IMF and the EU, and the idea of them being booted out of the Eurozone. But I'm quite, my, my question is, what if they just defaulted and said, I'm not leaving? Well, there's, they're, they're, treaty reasons why that might not work. But they're actually having people trying to figure out if there's a way to maybe do that. I mean, That's of, not... course, of course. Well, that... okay, so, but... so, okay, there is a way to do that. You can, the creditors could do a debt restructuring within the present, um, you know, Eurozone, Euro system. Uh, the creditors could say, oh, we're going to restructure your debts. And that would basically be a default. And at some point, that's inevitable. Greece has $350 billion of debts. It has a $220, $240 billion economy. There's no way that Greece is ever going to be able to repay all of its debts. So at some point, they're going to get restructured. A default in that sense for debt restructuring does not necessarily imply Brexit. But the converse is not true. If Greece were to devalue then it would have to default. It could never afford to pay in back that, in, that, in that case, it would look a little bit like Argentina, at least at the beginning. It would be very, very bad at the very beginning. And if Greece unilaterally defaulted without doing this, you know, in a very careful, coordinated way with its creditors, then it would immediately get cut off by the ECB. All of the banks would be insolvent. And basically, in that, in that way, it would be forced to devalue anyway. I guess there's another point that just to play devil's advocate with myself a little bit, which is that no matter how kind of okay Greece's budget looks right now, it's going to look a lot worse the second uh, they devalue. I mean, there's the economy is going to shrink there and all whatever revenue they're getting from taxes is going to dry up to some degree. So even if they manage to run a primary surplus for a while, but in the in the lead up um, there, it might not last. So that's another thing to consider, I suppose. Yeah, no one in Greece wants to exit. Well, not no one. The number of people in Greece who really want to exit the euro is small, even within the sort of hard left Syriza party, which which you know is in power right now. Most of them do want to remain in the euro, and that's why you know the prime minister, Mr. Tsipras, is making greater and greater concessions to try and make this happen because people in Greece know that it's going to be ugly. It's really, really ugly already. It is ugly. The the Greek macroeconomy is bad right now, but it will get much worse if they leave.
Yeah, I mean, that's I guess that's the only reason why you would consider it, because the alternative is staring down years of what's essentially still a depression. I mean, and that isn't going to disappear anytime in the near future. Yeah, that's that's the other question. The only reason to leave is not that it wouldn't get worse, it would get worse, but rather that it's the only hope for growth. It's a medium-term yeah. versus short-term thing. It would be worse in the short-term and poss- quite possibly better in the medium-term. But that's a, that's a risk, and, when, and a nobody knows risk. exactly. It's a big, and it, but yeah, it would possibly bit worse in the medium term, possibly better in the medium term, but almost certainly worse in the medium term for Europe as a whole, because the political president would be so, you know, bad. Okay, enough depressing macro. I think we're going to have to have a happy number. Someone has a happy number, right? I do. I do. I okay, Kathy, what's your happy number? Okay, um, happy for me. I don't know if you guys are going to agree with me. It's 2.9 million. That's the number of dollars um, that the de Blasio administration has put aside in this year's budget to kill rats. Now, who, <laughs> de Blasio is, now we New Yorkers know who de Blasio is. Who is oh, this he's de Blasio? Mayor, mayor de Blasio, mayor of New York City. Sorry. Mayor of New York City. Um, they've hired a, science, a sort of world-class rodentologist. Um, <laughs> is to, that actually a word? That's a word. I learned it this morning. Um, who's going to use scientific methods to kill the rats. And here's the thing. You mean rather than voodoo? Right. Well, rather than sort of ad hoc, let's put a kill poison over here and let's put, you know, traps over there. Kind of they're trying to do it in a systematic way and d- with checks and stuff. And and does this does this $2.9 million include kittens? Because the, <laughs> the, the internet would be very happy. Okay, good question. But you know how many rats there are? I mean, nobody knows exactly. I wanted that to be my number, actually. But nobody knows exactly. But estimates are up to one rat per person. Eight million rats. My fear is that whatever they do, it's just going to leave the strongest rats to survive. And pretty soon you're just going to have like... Super rats. You know, you're just going to have like Princess Bride style rouses like roaming (laughs) the subway. (laughs) Yes, yes. And by the way, one last disgusting fact, which I'm enjoying for some reason, each rat on, on average eats about an ounce of food a day. So that's a half a million pounds of food that we humans give to rats a day. So re- it's like the humans that are the problem, actually. Yeah. Eat more, people, so there's less food left over for the rats. Uh, um, they're Jordan. huge. They're so huge these days. What's your, what's your number? <laughs> My number is uh, 7.5%, um, which is, this is an Obamacare number to sort of, uh, as you might have heard, uh, the Affordable Care Act survived its latest Supreme Court challenge Woo. intact. Woo! Um, and 7.5%. That is how many people are uninsured in states that have fully embraced the law. They have embraced the Medicaid expansion. They have set up, they have the exchanges up and running. Um, That's down by about half since 2013 when the law fully went into effect. Um, the un- like it, Obamacare. I mean, it used to be. But it was about. It was over 15? fourteen. It was okay. close to fourteen percent before, it. or yeah. close to fifteen percent before. Yeah, exactly. Um, we Obamacare has managed to already in just two years cut the uninsured rate in about half in the states that have gone fully along with it. Um, nationally, it's the rate's gone from about seventeen percent, seventeen point four percent, down to ten point one percent. And these numbers come to us from the Urban Institute. There are lots of different groups that are tracking uh, uninsured rates of the country. This is a, a one credible one. Mm. Um, so, yay, Obamacare. All right. And, my, and I have another New York City one. This is, this is my favorite line from a story I was reading about property developers in Chelsea in New York, um, where there's this property developer called Mr. Feldman. 
And um, and this is a quote, direct a direct quote from from the Real Deal magazine. Quote: Feldman is keeping apartments small so that prices stay below ten million dollars. Oh my God! Kill me now. <laughs> Wait, your number is ten million. My number is ten million because that is that is a smaller small apartment now. <laughs> But in fact, these apartments are not so big. These apartments, when when they're saying keeping them small, what that means is fifteen hundred to two thousand square feet, which, by you know, American standards, is not actually that big. No. I mean, I think it's a big apartment because I'm a New Yorker. But fifteen hundred to two thousand square feet—that's how small you need to be in Chelsea now in order to keep your apartments below ten million dollars a piece. Wow. I thought we were supposed to stay happy here. <laughs> Let's go back to the rats. It, it, it's, it's happy news if you if you own property in Chelsea. Can we not go back to the rats? Let's not go to the rats. <laughs> let's, let's just go to the beach. Go out, drink beer, drink wine. Send us your wine questions. The email address is slatemoney at slate.com. And we will answer all of your wine questions in the special wine issue of Slate Money. I'm, I've decided this is going to be the best issue ever. <laughs> That's totally sad. Yeah. I'm going to sneak beer stuff into it. There's Uh-oh. no reason to think otherwise. So, yeah. SlateMoney at Slate.com. Send us wine. Send us anything else. Subscribe to Slate Money in the iTunes store. Leave a review there. Um, say a little thanks to Audrey Quinn, who was the producer this week and managed to keep us ticking along nicely. Uh, thanks, too, to Joel Meyer, the managing producer, Andy Bowers, the executive producer, and let's all party with the Panoply Network. So all of the Panoply podcasts are at iTunes.com slash Panoply. So we'll talk to you next week. And if you're planning out your July, I can tell you this is what you should be doing on Monday, July the 13th at City Winery in New York City. If you're here in New York, you're going to join the writers and editors of Outward, which is Slate's LGBTQ blog, as they discuss the impact of the amazing, wonderful Supreme Court ruling on same-sex marriage and other topics. And they'll be live on stage, and it will feature Brian Lauder, Mark Joseph Stern, June Thomas, who are the Outward bloggers, as well as Evan Wolfson, the attorney considered by many to be the architect of legal same-sex marriage, and... Ted Allen off the TV. It's going to be fun, and it's going to be um, your chance to pose your very own Ask a Homo question of the panel. So that is Monday, July the 13th, City Winery in New York. For tickets, go to slate.com slash nycoutward. So that's slate.com slash nycoutward. If you're a Slate Plus member, you get 30% off. All right. See you there. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.